Do you love science? Of course you do. So if you want to get the freshest possible science directly from the amazing early career researchers who perform the work, join Dr. Johnny Coates on the Preprints in Motion podcast every first and third Wednesday. Discussions range from COVID-19 to Lego microscopes to squid RNA editing. Each episode also reveals what it's really like to work in academia and the wide range of experiences that early career researchers face. But it isn't just science. Johnny talks with some of the biggest names in the open science arena to discover the future of scientific communication. So if you enjoy learning about fascinating science, if you want to hear about the newest scientific discoveries before anyone else, and if you want discussions on how to improve science, then subscribe to Preprints in Motion wherever you get your podcasts. Visit the team at Twitter at MotionPod or online at preprintsinmotion.com. Okay, Cam, I did it. I asked ChatGPT a question relevant to today's episode. Really? What was it? Why does Art say like so much on the show? Um, like, no. <laughs> I asked about one of the main topics that we discuss with our guest today. I asked ChatGPT, what is a network? And here's what it said, slightly abbreviated. A network is a group of interconnected devices, such as computers, servers, or other electronic devices that are connected to each other and can communicate and exchange data with one another. In essence, networks allow devices to share resources, communicate, and exchange information, and cooperate to perform tasks. Perhaps not surprising that the AI assumed you were talking about computer networks. Although, really, the, the phrase that are connected to each other and can communicate and exchange data with one another, I guess that also describes biological networks. As does the idea that networks share resources, communicate, and exchange information. That's basically a way of describing the functions of gene networks or organ networks. But we still understand very little about how biological networks are structured and how they evolve. Today's guest, Uri Alon, is a professor of biology at the Wiseman Institute of Science near Tel Aviv. Uri is famous for discovering in the early 2000s some of the fundamental characteristics of biological networks. We spend a good chunk of the chat talking with Uri about what are called network motifs. These are smaller patterns of connections that occur over and over again in larger networks, including things like feedback loops, feed-forward loops, and bifan motifs, in which two source nodes cross-regulate two target nodes. We talk about networks at three levels of organization. First, at the level of genes, we touch on questions about why there are so few underlying motifs, how evolution produced them, and their consequences for how genetic regulatory systems evolve. Second level of organization is about whole animals. Rudy has been thinking about whole animal networks a lot more recently in the context of human physiology, diseases, and the challenges that we face in our modern, exercise-poor, but calorie-rich lifestyles. We also ask about whether network properties from the gene regulatory and cellular levels scale up readily to explain network properties in whole organisms. The highest level we discuss is the networks formed by the scientists themselves. It's really not an exaggeration to say that Uri himself has played a key role in catalyzing the formation of new kinds of scientific networks, which have since transformed how biology is done. When he discovered the basic kinds of network motifs, Uri relied on several new public databases of genetic information on E. coli. That approach set the stage for the development of new models of widespread data sharing and cooperation among scientists, approaches we now take for granted, but those had to be invented along the way. We also talk about how he trains students to work at the interface between the known and the unknown. 
in part by approaching science as if we're improv comedy. And last thing, you may not know that Erdi also sings and plays guitar. To get an outsider perspective, as it were, I asked ChatGPT, what does Uri Alon sing about? Its response? Uri Alon is not known to be a singer. <laughs> okay, proof that you shouldn't trust answers from ChatGPT. <laughs> All you gotta do is listen to the episode. In which he performs three of his songs for us. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Cameron Gallenbor. And this is Big Biology. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, we're just super excited to talk to you on Big Biology, and you know, thank, thanks for working out the timing of this. This conversation has been a, a long time coming. We want to cover a lot of ground and talk about both science and sort of some of your recent thinking about the process of being a scientist and what it takes to be creative and to, to push the boundaries of, of fields. And so we thought that might be a really nice place to start. Maybe just talk about your ideas about the, the mindset of, of a creative scientist, so sort of like, what does it take intellectually and emotionally to do sort of new creative science that pushes the boundaries? You know, we, we, when we learn science, we're taught about scientists as if there's a question, an answer, and science is like a direct path. And when I was just beginning in science as a graduate student, I faced, uh, after a few months, a kind of situation where nothing seemed to work. And it was very depressing. I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of scientists yeah. do. That's our life. But for me, it was devastating. Like, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I couldn't shave. I couldn't function. It was because my dream was destroyed. I, I obviously can't be a scientist because scientists never get stuck. I can't be like Einstein or Newton or any other scientist. And so I felt unworthy to cross the threshold of the university. But then I was able to discover something, you know, small, small secret of nature during my PhD about turbulent mixing. I was in physics and wow, that was a big high. But then again, next second project, I got stuck totally desperate and um, with enough support, I made it through and it started realizing there's a pattern that we just don't talk about, which is the fact that science is done by human beings with our own emotional trajectories that are... Uh, different from a straight arrow from A to B. And that got me really interested. And, and I, luckily, I was also learning improvisation theater at the same time. So I had like these two lives. And there, there's a lot of concepts about going into the unknown together. Because always the only thing you learn is how to support each other on stage, make each other look good, give each other ideas and leads for creativity. And so uh, I try to kind of start forming a language for myself inside science about the process of science. And researching it and thinking about it a lot, writing about it, it's become like my passion now to be a change agent in science. It's contribute time to, uh, basically the vision is that scientists will have words to talk about our process, like active listening or being in the cloud, not only hydrogen bonds and uh, genes and stuff. And that, well, when we have that language, I think we can change our priorities in the way we promote people, mentor people, what we teach and how we write grants and et cetera, and science will be more aligned or values. T totally. So, so maybe let's just put some, some specifics on those bones. Um, so, you know, it sounds like you kind of arrived at a, a process on your own via these early projects that allowed you to develop some kind of resilience. So, so if you were to talk to a young scientist and advise them on how to 
do that project in some more systematic way, what, what would you say other than just go through it? So first thing I present to students is the concept of uh, the cloud of research. So instead of A, R, O, B, A is the question, B is the answer. Research is a straight path. I say A is the question, B is the answer. And you start going and you get stuck. I present a schema, right? You stuck, you're stuck, you're stuck, you're stuck, you're stuck, you're stuck until you reach a place linked with negative emotions that we're going to call for a, in our group the cloud. Now, when you're lost in the cloud, and you can be lost there for a month or three months or six months or a whole thesis, our whole career, you die, you're reincarnated as a scientist, you're still in the cloud. But if you have enough support, suddenly you see maybe through the cloud a new answer, let's call it C, and you decide to go there and things don't work, things like that, you're going to get there. And then we write a paper A-R-O-C, which is a great way to communicate as long as you don't forget our path. And there's no way to get rid of the cloud. It's built into, I, I tell this to the students just because it's not obvious in advance, right? It's part of our craft because this cloud stands at the boundary between the known and the unknown. And in order to discover something truly new, at least one of your basic assumptions has to change, which is uncomfortable for human beings. And so if you tell me, Uri, I'm in the cloud, I'll say you probably feel horrible, but I'm kind of happy because maybe we stand a chance to find something new. Finally, we're at the cloud stage. And then as a mentor, I know what to do instead of ignoring you or ordering uh, from Sigma, let's say, a, a whip to apply some psychological pressure. <laughs> we know that fear kind of restricts the playful curiosity you need to get out of the cloud. I'm going to find out with you what, what it means for you to uh, have solidarity and hope, which are the emotional foundations for this creative and playful curiosity. And solidarity and hope mean different things for different people, but it could be maybe it's time for you to go on a vacation do something else right now. Maybe it's time for us to meet more and work on, um, on just being together during this. Maybe it's time to talk to people who will ask you, so what are, what are your next ideas? And suddenly a voice inside you will find the answer. Maybe it's time to go to experts. Maybe it's time to go and present in a conference. It's really interesting to me to together to work with each student and with myself to find out what it means for them to go through this cloud. Just having that concept, that word, the cloud, is detoxifying because it doesn't mean something is wrong with you means you finally reach that unavoidable and natural stage of research where things don't work. And I say in the end, that's how I frame this whole idea of graduate studies. It's finding out how your personality rubs against the unknown and how to deal with yourself in this situation in order to be able to go into the land of the unknown. And uh, that's a transferable skill because most of the problems in our world now that are AROB are already done by software. The, the places where you need a human being to go into the cloud are the interesting and important challenges we have, not only in science, also outside, but science is like a laboratory, safe place to build your personality and remember that you're not alone in it and find that person that you can talk to on a daily basis to as an essential ingredient through the cloud. So that's one, just yeah. having that framework is transformative for me as a mentor. That, that strikes me as just like, you know, super healthy and productive even to have a framework that like that to be able to talk about these things. Because, you know, I think back to my graduate experiences and there was no such thing. And, you know, I was definitely in the cloud a lot of the time, but there was no, yeah, there's no way to talk about those things you just said, which seem super important. Yeah. The description of, of being in the cloud, I, I like that visualization. And, but it also uh, reminds me of this paper, um, that I, I recently discovered um, by uh, Martin Schwartz called The Importance of Stupidity in Scientific Research. Do you know this paper? Yeah, I posted it on my website. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah, I mean, I think what he describes is, you know, that, that when you move into the unknown and, and there are no answers, um, 
it sounds very similar to basically the being in that cloud. Cloud sounds a little bit nicer than uh, you know feeling stupid, but I think the the emotions are are very similar. <laughs> I put that there's a, I did a TED talk about that, and it has it's used by a lot of people, not also beyond science to just have, you know just these words we have. The words are transformative for for cultures. So so how does this translate into how you write papers and sort of present science at, at conferences? I mean, you know, I think often papers provide what appears to be a, a very linear sequence of steps, right? Something well thought out and, you know, you've been walking along this path and you discovered something. And what doesn't get communicated is the fact of being lost in the cloud. So do you, do you try to also incorporate some of that into the way you structure papers? I don't. I write papers in the AROC way because I think it's very clear. And even though it's not a historical record, it's a very clear. And it's actually an intellectual effort to try to reduce cognitive load for the reader in every way, including how to structure the story, how to make the graphics, etc., in order to help a certain message come through. And I am interested in how, as, as a culture, science can add the backstory. So, for example, in iGEM competitions, which are competitions where biologists build synthetic uh, circuits inside cells, in order to apply for the competition, you have to write down all your experiments that you did, including the failed ones. And put them in a public database, that actually becomes a kind of a figure of merit because you see, look how much work I've done. And it saves scientists from being doomed to go back uh, along the same path again and again because you can find out experiments they haven't worked, et cetera. So um, I think that we have, you know, the technology is available for science to, to go to the next level and record the chronological path as a second document with each paper and that's one, I think, intriguing idea for, for the future. So I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, this spending time in the cloud, I mean, we can see it in our, in our own research paths when we ask questions and the, the challenges that arise, but also when we, we kind of move between disciplines. And so this, this is something Art and I were, were talking about, you know, our own kind of arc within science and the challenges we faced as we've moved between different disciplines and I'm curious how how you sort of have approached those kinds of challenges. Like, is it is this feel very natural to move between, say, uh, physics and biology? It's a key question, and again, underexplored as a community. I, yeah, I moved from theoretical physics to experimental biology in my postdoc, and spent a lot of time working on bacteria and gene networks. And recently, I switched again, and now I'm working on human physiology and medicine. So. I've done it several times and trying to reflect on it. There's, there are kind of stages. One is when I feel mature enough in the field I'm already working on that I feel that if I'm presented with a new problem, I'll probably be able to do something reasonable. And for me, not for everyone, but for me, that starts a kind of uh, butterflies in my stomach and a tingling feeling that, okay, it's time to change. I think for me it is because I feel like I need to utilize my time on earth in a way that's kind of uh, unique with something that I, other people can't do, but that's, that's just me. I mean, there's many other kind of motivations. And then I open up a window of, for searching for what that field could be. And that's a process that takes years. And when I started entering a new field, there are a lot of fears. I don't have my colleagues and my conferences and my grants and my papers. I'm a newcomer. And so I've learned some things about that. The first is, that um, when people in the field see a newcomer, there's a, there's a bias towards seeing them as, a, who is this new person? What, 
what does this for a new person know? So I reach out to them and I ask them to teach me. So I say, here's a paper we're thinking of writing and I have an accent. I'm not, let's say, a, a biologist, I'm a physicist, I'm speaking with an accent. So I'd like to help me, you to help me find out how to improve my accent and what are my pitfalls. And then you turn a potential enemy into an ally just by approaching them and mm. learning a lot. So you need to learn a whole set of paradigms and ways of doing things. The papers you read are probably so old now that the whole field is engaged in disproving them, but you don't know that from the literature. So you need to talk to people. And the second uh, principle I found is what's called uh, beneficial ignorance. So I come into a new field, I'm ignorant. And at first that gives you an advantage because you're not locked into the ways people have been doing. But then you get the sense, okay, now that I've kind of discovered something I think is new, now let's read and try to go as deep as possible. So when is it that you read is an interesting timing question and, and get feedback from experts, etc. And, and it's really learning a new social context with its own languages and pitfalls that I find just fascinating. I was going to ask, um, you know, when you when you shift from one field to another, what what do you think you take along with you from the old field to the new? Is it like specific concepts and sort of mental structures you developed, or is it like ways of thinking, or is it none of that, and you're just starting starting fresh in the new thing? You bring uh, precious things from your old field. So, from physics, for example, it's not only the tools of mathematical modeling, knowing how to tell. The essential from the non-essential to build a minimal model. I think it's the deep belief that physicists have is that nature has an angle where things look simple. That's because the solar system really does have an angle where things look system, right? Newton's laws. Now that's not guaranteed when you study the thyroid gland or, you know, a bacterial transcription network. Nobody said that there's going to be any angle of simplicity because these things evolved to function, not for scientists to understand them. But you still bring that belief. And since you bring that belief, you try. You try to find angle simplicity. If you don't try to find angle simplicity, you're guaranteed not to find it. And sometimes <laughs> you don't, but sometimes you do. That orientation, I think, is just an example of what you bring from one field to another. And I think I'll do my first song here about moving, changing fields. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, yes, please. So when I moved from physics to biology, I, I, knew, no, I knew nothing. On, I, the only thing I knew about biology basically was what I read on the back of a cereal box, like proteins, carbohydrates. And there was a person in the next lab called Mike Surrett, who was a postdoc. And he took me under his wing and made me feel like no question is stupid. And I just wouldn't be here without Mike Surrett. And so this song is about Mike. And if you have someone like that in your career, so I invite you to think about them when I'm singing. And since Mike is from Canada, the music is by another Canadian, Leonard Cohen. Mike takes you down to a place by the centrifuges. It's your first day in the lab, and you don't know what a centrifuge is. And he hands you precious flasks, and you drop them, and they shatter. And you look at him quite meekly, but he says it doesn't matter. They were only the controls. And he gives you of his buffers, and he gives you of his strains, and you wish you had his genome, or at least you had his brains. 
I came to him one morning, an idea had been forming. My transformers weren't transforming, and my swarmers were not swarming. I said, Mike, I'm a failure. I'm going to work at Happy Burgers. I think I'm quitting science. But he said, now don't be hasty, you see. Science, like the cafeteria, sometimes nasty, sometimes tasty. And he soothed you so discreetly, and you trusted him completely, and your mind, it has been freed, and you know that somewhere something will succeed. Now Mike is packing his papers in a folder, there's a knapsack on his shoulder, his pipette is in its holder, and as he leaves the floor, the shakers all stop shaking, the columns all run dry, and the autoclave stops baking. It'll never be the same. And you know that you must keep him, or at least that you must clone him. And you know that you will, and you know that you will phone him all the time. Mike takes you down. Awesome. Love like it. <laughs> Centrifuge. That's a hard one to get a rhyme for. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so you're still in contact with Mike? Yeah. And he's, uh, he's now, he was opposed. I know he's a PI in Canada. But the main thing is that those re relationships aren't necessarily with your mentor. They could be with other people in the group. And they have no uh, official task to help you. But I think a lot of scientists depend on these interactions. That's why I sing the song. I do it in conferences and meetings so just to highlight that these interactions are, are what makes science work in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah. So when you're moving fields, I think that's another place where they're essential. And you're in a friend, informant, ally that can understand you, wants to help you. And Yeah, no, that's super great. You, you, you just talked briefly about this a few minutes ago about using improv and your experiences in improv. Maybe say a little bit more about that. So how does, how does improv intersect with science? So as we said, science go, uh, demands going into the unknown with a group of others. I mean, it's a lot of science is done alone, but also a lot of science is done together. But on, on the other hand, science has no concept. We don't, it's like from the neck up, we don't talk about the, the emotional part of it and how to do it. It's a, improv is the opposite. You go, I mean, like science, you go into the unknown, because you're on stage, you don't know if you'll be play a dad, a grandfather, a mafia guy, uh, whatever. You can play a dog, a table. You don't know. You have no script. The only thing you can prepare for is actually the emotional group process. And, and we can learn from that, I think. Because they can supply the group process and the words about the process we need in science. Right? So, for example, the big principle in improv is what's called saying yes and. So imagine a scientific conversation where you're blocked right away. Your idea just in 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 improv blocking sounds like this. You you let's say go on stage and you say, um, "Here's a pool of water," and the other person says, "No, that's just the stage. It's no pool of water here. That's blocking. Okay, it's dead." But if you say, "Here's a pool of water," and the other one says, "Yeah, let's jump in." Oh, look, there's a whale. Yeah, let's grab it by its tail. It's pulling us to the moon. That's saying yes and. It's it's agreeing and building. Or if I say. Dad, and you say, I'm not your dad, it's over. I say, dad, and you say, you do your homework. I'm saying yes and, right? Because now I'm dad. Now imagine that skill in a scientific conversation. 
you take you take a person's idea, build on it, build on it, build on it, build on it, and you get to the moon like that. So that micro interaction could be the difference between a fruitful procreation and something that fizzles out, leaving you feeling maybe I wasn't heard. And so, so that skill is huge. And this whole mindset of going into the unknown together, I would say, is a metaphor for, for me that I take from the improv world into science. So instead of science, science could have different metaphors. It could be a battle, right? I have my position, it's entrenched, or it could be whatever. But if it's a going to the unknown together, collective storytelling by a community groping into the unknown, it's a very generative metaphor. Yeah. So this, it sounds like, you know, the idea of metaphors can be very important and, and powerful in helping move things forward. But I'm also curious if there are cases where you find that metaphors can also be uh, inhibiting for progress because they, they may, for example, give you a, a misguided, simplistic view of what's going on. So metaphors, actually, historically, the Royal Society, 17th century, tried to build a language without metaphors. That project failed. But nowadays, it's, it's considered the metaphors are a major tool for scientists because when we go into the unknown, the only something one of our only tools to think about a new unknown object is to take something we know and entail some of its properties on the unknown, right? So um, the, the, the brain is a computer. But, of course, it doesn't have silicon and doesn't have... Uh, USB ports. And so I think the danger that you mentioned about metaphors is when you're not mindful of the metaphor you're using and its limitations. And if you're mindful of what metaphor you're using, which can take actually some introspection, if you are mindful, it's very powerful. They can be misleading. Uh, if we understand them, they're a powerful tool. Yeah, I think it's a really important point because I, I can't recall having these kinds of explicit conversations either with colleagues or students about the the metaphors that we we use every day they're just sort of there and um, I think they get incorporated into our um, our worldviews of you know how we approach questions and how we interpret our our results but I think we we yeah we don't really explicitly talk about them and that seems like something really important I would just want to mention two references maybe one is Lakoff and Johnson's book Metaphors we live by. These are two philosophers that just expose the importance of metaphors in our life. Another one is Evelyn Fox Keller, who's actually a pioneer of biophysics and also a pioneer of uh, gender studies and philosophy. And she has a book on the use of metaphors in genetics. For example, how metaphors can have a contradiction, like gene action. Gene is like an atom that moves by Mendelian laws. And action is a little homunculus that does what the gene is supposed to do. And that helped biologists in 1900 cross this paradox of a mathematical object moving by Mendel's laws and doing something like in the cell without knowing about, you know, the central dogma. So it's a self-contradicting metaphor that was fruitful enough to do research with. I think it's a beautiful analysis by Evelyn Fox Keller and it opened my eyes. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of her. Her uh, biography of uh, Barbara McClintock is required reading. Well, hey, I think this might be a good place to transition to talking about biological circuits, biological networks, and just sort of digging into some of the biological things that Cam and I think about uh, reasonably often as as physiologists and evolutionary biologists. So you are famous in part for 
a bunch of work you've done over the last, say, 20 years on biological circuits, biological networks, and what we might call network motifs. So maybe let's just start there. What What is a network motif and, and why do they matter? So um, when I came into biology around uh, 1999, 2000, there's been decades of, of amazing work to find out uh, the different proteins in the cell and which protein interacts with DNA transcription factor to make other proteins uh, be produced. And it's a huge amount of information. And it was very frustrating that you can't get from that into the functions, the wonderful functions of cells. So that could be described as a network where each, let's say, protein is a transcription factor for genes that make other proteins and you make arrows between them. These networks were called fuzzballs because thousands of nodes with arrows, like you can't even figure. So coming from physics, I guess I had the belief that there has to be some angle of simplicity in this fuzzballs. And what I did together with Shai Chenol and Ron Milo, graduate students, my first graduate students, was to um, first build a database of all the interactions known in E. coli in a simple bacterium, and then to look at it. And we that, what we discovered is this complicated network is made of recurring instances of very simple subgraphs or circuits. So. We call them network motifs because like motifs in a wallpaper, these little patterns appear again and again and basically make up the entire network. And each pattern uh, had a specific biological function or let's say an information processing function. So there was, for example, a kind of a triangle pattern where X regulates Z and also regulates a regulator of Z, Y. So it's X regulates Z and Y that regulates Z. We call that a feed-forward loop. And that could be, each of those arrows could be activation or repressing. So there's three arrows, two to the power of three is eight. So there's eight possibilities, but only two of them appear, the coherent feed-forward loop and the incoherent type one feed-forward. And one of them is a, is a pulse generator. And the other one is a kind of delay element that uh, responds quickly when the signal gets turned on, but slowly when the signal gets turned off. And we started like exploring. And the same logic appears in many different biological systems inside E. coli, but with the same wiring. And so we started experimentally to test what is it doing and how it's important in the function of uh, the cell. So the cell might be making a, a big outboard mortar, like a flagella using a lot of energy, but now it's moving into a place with a lot of food. It doesn't need to swim away, but it doesn't stop all at once making the flagella because it anticipates that soon food will run out. So you need that delay circuit air to Turn it on quickly, but turn it off slowly. Once there's a lot of food, you know, you wait to see if this food is going to run out. So there's an evolutionary pressure that we think uh, again and again to make the same kind of logical or informational processing functions, but each time on a different system inside the cell. And that's why evolution rediscovers actually the same patterns. A little bit like engineers reuse just maybe a hundred basic circuits, amplifiers and memories and toggle switches to build all devices. So these network motifs, uh, there's three ones in E. coli, and the same ones found in East, and then it turns out later work that the same motifs are found throughout life. So they're kind of a unifying uh, logical circuits, even though the proteins themselves are completely different and just got wired together in the same ways. It wasn't like an original circuit splitting up and into all its descendants. It's... So, so how many basic how many basic motifs are there altogether? So in E. coli, there's, there's three, and uh, then in uh, multicellular organisms, there's another three, so maybe six total. And uh, and then the same idea can be applied to any network. So 
Uh, other researchers have discovered network motifs in, brain, in the brain, so which, how what, neurons are wired together, which patterns occur and which patterns are anti-motifs. They occur much less often than you might expect. Uh, in ec ecological networks and in um, social networks, and each kind of network has its own network motifs, right? So social networks have a lot of these fully connected uh, triangles where people that like each other like to be in groups and things like that. But that doesn't occur so much in, in transcription networks and biological networks. Yeah. So, so you're saying there's not like a universal set of motifs across all networks, regardless of the medium. Like it, it can be context specific. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They have, we think they expose what this network evolved to do on this level of computation. So transcriptional networks evolved to process information in a noisy world with noisy components. They might be different from ecological networks where who knows what they evolved for, but they pass energy from uh, you know, from lower to higher uh, trophic levels. By the way, there are two networks that are completely different in terms of their scale, but they have the same motifs. And that's when you look at transcription networks in E. coli and neural networks, neuronal connections in things like worms, C. elegans. And they have the same kind of triangles that have been described and they lack, they have the same anti-motifs and motifs. And we think the reason is that also the brain of these simple animals evolved to transduce information between noisy inputs and noisy components. And so a lot of the yeah. information- the same basic problem. Same. Even though the neurons you know, are huge cells compared to some of their micron long cells compared to nanometer sized proteins inside the cell. And so the scales are different, the scales are different, but the logic is the same in many ways. So network motifs, um, very satisfying. And the moment I saw them on the paper, I had this very quiet and silent moment <laughs> where I knew, I just knew that this is a very important and that I know what I'm going to do in the next five years. I was a new faculty member. I was really stressed out to find my direction. I knew next five years, take each motif and do the experiment to find out what it does and the mathematical modeling to, to know what it does. And each graduate student is now going to work on a different motif. And I basically took my entire group and I persuaded them to change their projects. And, that, and that's what we're working on now. It was just amazing. And also the way uh, biologists responded, I think I was very lucky to be at a moment in time where biologists were frustrated with the, the, the amount of information available, but the lack of concepts to turn it into understanding. And so this came at a very, very good time. And also I think catalyzed the entry into biology of a lot of people from physics and computer science backgrounds, because they saw this and said, oh, I can do something in biology. I had no idea. I can do something. I understand graphs. I understand. It's like a meta a metaphor doorway as an entry into into biology. And yeah. also huh. catalyzed me to write a, a book called Introduction to Systems Biology, and that just to because when you write papers, I'm always thinking about reviewers. Here, I wanted like a place to just say it like it is. You know, just I have full autonomy to paint the whole picture like that. And I think it was I was very lucky because. The timing in the field was so right, and the people with me were so right. And the it was just the beginning of the internet, people making data available. So it was a database in Mexico, Colado Vidas, that did a lot of the, collected a lot of the information that we could just download. So, so generous, right? And then we added a lot, and we downloaded. So it was just the beginning of this culture of sharing data. And just the sharing of a huge network helped other people develop ideas, and so... Uh, that paper became also very impactful because it was just a source of data. Now it sounds obvious that you, you know, you do your large biological experiment and you put your data online, but then it wasn't like that. So it was a kind of participate in this new culture forming moment in biology in multiple ways. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. 
So uh, to kind of follow up on on the the idea of these these motifs, of all the possible uh, motifs that could be sort of put together, we we see just a relatively few number. And do you think that reflects a history of sampling different kinds of motifs and then settling on like a core few number that that work really well in the in that in the context of a of a given system or is there something more general about just you know there are only a few ways that you can kind of solve things so the we and many others actually have investigated both questions so i, I want to say that when you look at engineering textbooks and you look at an amplifier circuit there is a huge number of amplifiers that work on paper but only very few that work in the real world because in the real world your resistors and capacitors are going to have a plus minus you know few percent error and temperature is going to change and the box will be dropped on the floor and so the circuit you see in the books is the robust one that doesn't depend on that and the same way you can say if you want to make uh, let's say uh, a pulse generator or a delay element there are many many circuits you can write down on paper but there are very few that will work despite the fact that biological cells have unavoidable noise if you want to have 100 proteins on average of a certain kind one cell will have 110 another cell will have 90. you can't avoid that so there's a lot of constraints the circuits need to do into work and work in the real world. And that limits tremendously the number of circuits. So uh, we think that there, there are actually only a few solutions and that biology has no choice but to work with them. The other question is how you arrive at them. So I think just like you said, there is a search process because if you talk about transcription networks, so a transcription factor protein needs to bind the DNA at a certain site that's made of DNA base pair letters. There are so many bacteria that you scan all possible changes of the letter quite quickly in a small test tube. And so a bacteria that has a tiny fitness advantage over time will grow. And so it's not difficult. And we even showed it in the lab to show that when you change environments, the circuit will actually evolve a different design that's more optimal. So bacteria have no problem doing it. How uh, multicellular animals do it is I think is a little bit more difficult to understand because we have so many cells and so many circuits in each kind of cell and so many fitness questions. So I think that's an avenue of current research and uh, how optimal things are in multicellular organisms versus historical accidents or nearly good enough designs is, I think, a fascinating, I, I find very appealing question right now. Yeah. So if I could just follow up on that. So what do we know about how much variation exists in networks like across a genotypes in a population? Given that there's this capacity for the network to evolve, we have these conserved network motif elements, but then, you know, those are just part of larger interacting networks. So if I could line up 100 E. coli or 100 individuals of flies in a population and, and I compared their networks, how similar would they be or how different? Yeah. So uh, I, th I think it's, it's quite striking. If we think about a human being, let's say, our cells, uh, each division, we have one new point mutation in our genome. But not even, even if you don't divide, you have several tens point mutation per year. So when you reach, uh, you know, age 60 or something, you might have hundreds, thousands of mutations. Now, if those mutations do something very, very bad to the cell, the cell, of course, is eliminated. But I think that means that each cell has, has actually at least one arrow is different in, the, in, the, in its network probably multiple ones. So we're actually uh, a mosaic of many interacting instances 
And of course, in our body, if a change like that could lead to a cell going out of control, like a cancer, and then making a clone is very fit inside our body, but it can kill the entire organism. And because we rely on the germ cells to pass on, the germ cells, by the way, are different by only about a few tens of mutations between father, parent, and, and child. But in our body, we have thousands of mutations accumulating in each stem cell, let's say. There's a paper just did that in 2022 by sequencing individual stem cells and seeing how number of mutations rising linearly with age reaching 3,000 on average at age 80, both in neurons and in gut cells. So, and, and then we're in old age, we're made of little chimera, like kingdoms of cells that come, they're clonally related, but are different from the kingdom next door. So that's been shown in multiple organs. And if you think about a tree, each branch originates is actually genetically different from the other branch. So if you look at a tree, it's actually also a phylogenetic tree, right? So uh, living organisms uh, are made of examples of different variations on the network inside them. And... But but so these um, the accumulation of of mutations sort of within the lifetime of an organism, many of those are not passed on. So I can see how, you know, for example, that could create variation in lifespan, in, in fitness, um, but then sort of the transgenerational sort of what, what gets passed on through the germline, you know, that I assume is going to be a much smaller subset of all of those mutations. Is that some area that is kind of at the intersection of uh, evolutionary biology and and maybe this type of systems biology? Yeah, for sure. Asking is the, the mutation rate and transmission of the germline seems to be quite constant despite differences in the size of the genome. So that might be a kind of conserved quantity that is balancing the trade-off between having enough evolutionary change to adapt and being deleterious and lowering fitness. And then when you try to understand the mutations plus the network motifs and the circuits, so you want, you need to go between a mutation in the DNA and its phenotypic consequences on the shape of the organ. So you have to go through a circuit design. So actually a lot of our work now is figuring it out how a circuits could be designed to resist mutations. And I'll just give uh, one example, uh, immune cells are very good to fight viruses and bacteria. So they sense these foreign pieces of protein and they say, oh, that's something new. We need to kill it. But imagine now that we have a mutant immune cell that doesn't really bind an actual pathogen, but its receptor has a mutation thinking it's binding. So it's locked on. So this is now a paranoid T cell thinking there's enemies when there aren't. It's going to do what a good T cell does. Start dividing, dividing, dividing and attacking and killing. So T cells and B cells have a built-in cell autonomous suicide mechanism. When they're activated too much, they kill themselves. So that, and that's built into their design. So that also helps them not attack self because self is found in such huge amounts that they kill themselves. But also if they happen to be a mutant, they kill themselves because they're hyperactive. So um, we term this uh, kind of biphasic a mutant resistance where where your reaction makes you more active but then makes you less active if, if the input is too large and that's seen also in neurons where hyperactivation leads to neuron death and that's seen also in, in the beta cells that make insulin if they sense glucose they make insulin to remove glucose but if they sense too much glucose they kill themselves that's called glucose toxicity so glucose kills the cells that, that protect us against glucose so i'm working on how circuits could be resilient to mutants and that actually opens your eyes and then you understand things that might not be that look weird like why should glucose kill the beta cells 
to defend it, you know, that are built to control glucose. It's also, of course, related to diseases like type 2 diabetes or, uh, or autoimmune diseases in the case of T cells or neurodegenerative diseases in the case of neurons, because that suicide can, it can trigger these de- degenerative diseases. So, so I have a maybe related question about robustness of these biological circuits. I think it's sort of broadly speaking what we're what we're talking about here. And, and this is just occurring to me and drawing on my sort of physiological interests in. I, so, so I work a lot on small ectotherms, insects, and marine invertebrates that are ectotherms. So their body temperatures vary a lot. And one of the ways that I, I think about their biology is to think about the temperature coefficients of the various sub-processes that are making up organisms. You know, so some some things inside organisms are very sensitive to temperature, other things are not. And if we sort of apply that thinking to the biological networks that are operating inside these organisms, you can imagine that as their body temperatures go up and down, the different parts of the network are responding differently to temperature. So given that, how do these networks become robust to be able to like do the things that they do despite all of this massive external variation that's imposing shifts in the relationships among among the parts and and maybe another more specific way of saying that is like you know a, a drosophila embryo developing is going to do a good job of making a little drosophila maggot you know regardless of whether it's at 15 degrees or 20 degrees or 25 degrees how, how do networks have robustness in the face of that sort of environmental variation and then i guess the follow-up is like does that make them more robust also to things like mutations impinging on on those networks yeah so what you just asked is of great interest to me, and we worked a lot on, on this question. And my point of view is that the need to be robust to things like temperature that vary naturally is a prime reason for the way the circuits are the way they are. And so there are several principles of circuit design that appear in biology that help you be robust to things like temperature. I'll just give one example. It's called paradoxical components or antagonistic pleiotropy on the level of enzymes. So there are, let's say, enzymes, the two component systems in bacteria, for example, which do a reaction and also it's opposite in two different sites. So for example, they phosphorylate a protein and also they're the phosphatase for that protein. The two opposite reactions are on the same protein in two different sites. And that seems confusing. Why do that? But the reason is that if you now, uh, let's say, if the concentration of that enzyme rises, both reactions rise together and the ratio stays the same. And that means that the phosphorylated product is going to stay the same because it's production divided by removal. And so you become robust to something that varies between cell to cell, which is a concentration of an enzyme that can vary. And if you want to do it with temperature, I guess just like in mechanics where you build a little piece of a watch out of two metals that have opposing temperature expansion coefficients, you can, you can make sure that temperature dependence of opposing parts are, are designed in a way to compensate for each other. And there's actually a, a concept called, I think, uh, something like thermogenetic congruence or something like that, that is exactly the idea you said that robustness to one set of noise or perturbations can make you robust to other ones. So could be that mutations that the, the robust design against temperature or osmotic pressure or something like that can also protect against mutations that in a certain way mimic the effects of deforming the protein. And so um, those are pretty deep concepts. I, engineers also spend a lot of time thinking about robustness because it's, again, a real-world problem. And they have solutions like integral feedback where you have a 
that that's when I'm cooling my room and I'm sensing the temperature and I, I control the power to the heater according to if there, if my temperature isn't right, I start integrating that error. So accumulating it over time and increasing the signal. So if it's not right for a long time, I really pump it up and that has no choice but to push the temperature back to normal. That's called integral feedback. And that occurs, we find in many, many circuits in biology where the integrator are things like concentration of a protein or phosphorylation that kind of accumulates the error signal. You can then mathematically prove that the system is going to return to its set point, no matter what the parameters are, no matter what the speed of the reactions are. So engineers and, bio and evolution apparently rediscovered like the, the same math principles. And I think the reason is that there are very few ways to make things absolutely robust. Huh. One, one follow-up about temperature specifically. So did you say that in some sense there's going to be co-evolution of the temperature coefficients of the parts of these biological circuits in, in order to make them robust? Or is there some alternative way of making them robust that doesn't require this sort of parallel evolution of temperature coefficients? So parallel evolution of temperature coefficients is definitely a possibility. And I, I guess it also, there's studies about that. But there are ways to bypass that. So if I build in an integral feedback loop, so suppose I want to keep homeostasis of something in, inside the organism. Homeostasis keeping it at the same level, let's say, for example, let's say glucose or something like that. So what you build is, you build a detector for glucose that releases, let's say, a hormone like insulin. All that is going to be affected by temperature, the release rate, how much insulin affects the receptors. All that's going to be temperature dependent. And your blood volume is going to change. Maybe you're pregnant, 50% more blood volume. And, and nutrition is going to change. All is going to change. But what you make sure to do is that the growth rate of the cells that secrete insulin is somehow going to be increasing with the amount of glucose. Again, it could be temperature dependent. What's going to happen is if, if glucose is off, that it's too high, those cells are going to start dividing, expanding, 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 making more insulin, more insulin, more insulin. And it's only going to stop when glucose reaches the set point. So the amount of those cells is like an integrator, and it integrates over the error as long as glucose is not in the set point. And so it's going to reach a new mass that's exactly right for the temperature you're working on for the blood volume you have, for the nutrition you have, for your genetics, for uh, you just need to make a very uh, kind of qualitative demand on the circuit in order to just make the growth rate go up with glucose. That's all you need to do. And that, and mathematically, it, it, all the parameters that are temperature dependent or whatever drop out and you're left with very, very few parameters that are kind of hardwired. And that's like, uh, that's the integral feedback principle that you can find in cells, you can find in proteins. And that's what engineers use, because I have a thermometer here that controls temperature made by one company, and my heater is made by a completely different company. And they talk to each other perfectly because of this integral feedback, right? And maybe my heater is already old, and it's, you know, per unit power, it makes less temperature or more temperature. Maybe I've opened the window now. Maybe I put another heater in. It still reaches the same temperature. It's robust to almost everything. And that's, that's the same principle that cells can use and proteins can use by accumulating cells or accumulating modifications. So um, I believe there are ways to do it that are, don't require co-evolution of temperature coefficients, et cetera. Yeah. So if I could follow up on that, then um, robustness in this kind of way, you know, whether we think about it as homeostasis or integrating uh, other kinds of, uh, of information seems to be a very universal property of these kinds of systems. And yet 
despite this robustness, sometimes they fail, like if we get sick, for example. And so so what goes wrong? Are there breaking points within within networks that kind of compromise the whole system? Exactly. So this is um, what you were just asking me is like the narrative of the book I'm writing right now, which is called Systems Medicine. Circuits, why they're essential, what their fragilities are, and how you can derive the diseases. Of... So if you think, take a look at those beta cells, one huge factor, of course, is that evolution works in a certain place in time with a certain amount of nutrition and exercise, and you take it to a different place in time. So you put the circuits in an environment they weren't designed for. Plus aging. We're not designed for old age. Old age it takes, again, the circuits outside of their working range. So what, what, what can go wrong, for example? In human beings, those beta cells, they stop dividing after age five or something like that. But in order to compensate, they, they grow their size. It's called hypertrophy. They grow their size or shrink their size to give you that compensation I was talking about. So you're stuck with a certain number of beta cells. But cells can't grow their sizes by more than a factor of two before getting into trouble, unless they're polynucleated. So there's a carrying capacity. There's a maximum they can compensate. And so when that integrator hits a limit, the number of the mass, total mass of beta cells can't grow anymore because it's reached its limit. That's when compensation stops. And then you expose those fragilities, right? Now I have insulin resistance. Insulin doesn't work anymore. Before that, beta cell mass could rise, rise, rise to compensate and make more insulin. But once they max out and reach your carrying capacity, now more insulin resistance is going to raise glucose and I'm going to have prediabetes. A little bit more, diabetes. A little more, glucose gets so high, those beta cells kill themselves to avoid the mutant problem. Now you have end-stage diabetes. So I solved one problem, mutant resistance, but now taking the circuit out of its uh, natural resources, that suicide mechanism turns into a loss of beta cell function because glucose really is that high. It's not a mutation. So the circuits have these essential functions and they have fragilities. And you see those fragilities when you take the circuit out of its operating context. So carrying capacity is a huge one. I would say all biological processes saturate. So eventually you can't compensate anymore. That also can tell you a lot about what happens in aging when you have uh, damaged cells that the body can deal with when you're young with, because we, all, we have a certain amount of garbage trucks to take care of the garbage. But we're not designed to increase that number of trucks. The immune system doesn't increase with age, but the, the fact that cells are present in our body for decades and accumulate epigenetic changes and mutations, that rises linearly with age. So amount of damaged cells produced rises linearly with age. The trucks get saturated. And boom, you have a problem. At a certain age, garbage starts piling up. Yeah. <laughs> that medical model, from point of view, explains a lot of patterns you see in aging. And, uh, and so all biological processes saturate and, and cells mutate and all cells come from cells. Those kind of basic principles you can build together, kind of far-reaching conclusions about what happens in physiology and when it breaks down. So, so is the book going to make recommendations about how to keep your circuits happy and healthy as long as possible as you age? It's going to um, interpret in a coherent framework a lot of in interventions that in model organisms kind of seem to slow down aging and help a lot of different age-related diseases at once. So like, why, why does caloric restriction do that? And why does uh, lowering me metabolic rate uh, using insulin kind of mutations? And why it it's basically places a lot of these interventions in one kind of coherent scheme. So some of them help the trucks, other ones uh, reduce the production of garbage, other one, and then you can make predictions based on that. So, of course, for human beings, it's, it's still unclear what, what works and what doesn't. 
But at least for model organisms, there appears to be some kind of universality in aging. So the same interventions seem to work across organisms. And that way of thinking can help you form the concepts to at least comprehend it at, at all within one kind of unifying framework. Yeah. So just one follow-up question on that. I, I find that kind of perspective very satisfying. Um, but I also see that there have been arguments for how, for example, stress and the breakdown of these of these types of like uh, mechanisms for taking out the garbage, so to speak, can increase variation that then natural selection can act upon and be a sort of a catalyst for evolutionary change. And I'm I'm thinking about sort of like these evolutionary capacitance models. This is linguist work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know the the ability to kind of fix those. Uh, misshapen proteins. If that if that system gets you know stressed too much, then you all of a sudden release all this hidden variation. So can that fit into this this paradigm as well? So first, I, I didn't think about that particular direction, but if I were to improvise, I would say that in this garbage truck picture, which if you think inside a cell and you have your damage repair mechanisms, a lot of them do get upregulated with more damage. They're they're not the ones dangerous in aging. But if there are ones that have a limit and damage accumulates more, then when they're saturated, you will expose, I think, just like you say, new and unexpected shapes of proteins. And that would be very detrimental inside an organism. But it's just like Susan Linquist showed, that can help you get through a rough patch by exposing hidden genetic variation. So um, maybe the body also uses that because of the unexpectedness. This we talk like an improv, right? You go into the unknown together. All of our cells do that all the time. They go into the unknown together. And they do it quite well. So <laughs> I mean, but I think the idea is that most of the time it, it doesn't turn out well. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. by chance, you know, you might get a, a good combination that comes out. We're starting to get on in time and um, we had some questions about organisms and the sort of roles of organisms in, in biology. And I guess this sort of overall idea comes out of Cam and I and, and some other colleagues, including Marty, our other co-host, thinking over the last few years and arguing with each other a lot about what organisms are and whether they're special in some way and you know how, how to think about organisms in the levels of biological organization in, in the world. And I wanna maybe ask you this, by posing it in terms of biological circuits and networks, and then thinking about the sort of level that we've been discussing these things at, so physiological networks, regulatory networks, or gene gene networks, and asking, as you scale up to organisms, do you need new concepts in order to understand what organisms are and how they operate? Or is it just a question of scaling up the ideas to sort of a, a different level of organization. I resonate with that question because I switched fields from thinking about E. coli to thinking about human physiology. And it did, it did, uh, I, I had some kind of shocks that I had to get my mind across. One of them has to do with, we were discussing the need to resist mutations. So E. coli, if there is a mutation that's helpful, it will multiply. If there's a mutation that's deleterious, it'll, it'll be eliminated. It's not built to withstand mutations, I would say. But because we are a collective of cells, we, we're a society of cells that need to work, go into the unknown together, we need to worry a lot about mutations and, or cheater detection, you might say. And that creates 
a whole set of needs for the multicellular organism. We need both cell autonomous kind of suicide mechanisms and also police forces. Like we think that the adaptive immune system plays a role we call autoimmune surveillance, where they play a role in also eliminating cells that are mutant and not only cancer cells, but cells that are like doing too much of, the, of the, what they should do. So they have no, no new proteins, but they're just making more proteins than they should and dividing. And then we think those T cells are the basis for autoimmune diseases too. So you can't keep, let's say, a thyroid without eliminating mutant thyroid cells that think you should make more thyroid hormone than divide and make these toxic nodules. You have to kill them using T cells, we think. But those same, same T cells in 4% of the population, mostly women, turn into autoimmune diseases that kills your entire thyroid. So there's these extra multicellular constraints that you need when you think now of an organism as a collection of cells. But it gets very tricky, like we thinking of the tree with where each branch is a different genome. And what is an organism? Is it a, I think an organism is a category and it's limited because of human beings. We want to have an organism, but in fact, it's a continuum of, I guess, tying back to what we said before, of a continuum of networks or genetic entities living together in a multicellular organism. And it's kind of an illusion to think that there will be a clean category. Yeah. So um, it sounds like a lot of what you've been describing kind of falls under what evolutionary biologists would, would kind of refer to as a levels of selection problem. And and in particular, I'm thinking about this tension that plays out at, at all levels of biological organization uh, between conflict and cooperation. And so... You know, we, we, we can see, for example, at the level of genome, um, selfish genetic elements like transposable elements, or a lot of the mechanisms that you've been describing, and, and then the counter system that keeps those things in check. So you have, you have selfishness, but then, you know, that compromises the system, whether it's a whole organism or, a, or a, an, any other kind of network. And, and in order for the network to work, there has to be this, this cooperation for for it to function properly and so it, it, to me it it seems that this is something that's that really kind of characterizes certainly organisms but but maybe just biological systems in general and maybe is something that makes organisms and biological systems fundamentally different from the kinds of things that are engineered and not sort of living in that way is that going too far or is that a, a fair assessment i'm not sure <laughs> i think it's certainly when you think about engineering until the very recently that ha, that can design away this problem like when i look at my thermostat it, it's sitting there it doesn't start mutating and dividing so the engineers don't have that problem but when you think now about you know computer viruses and uh, mal, mal, you know software fake news, then we're in a different field where we need to have an immune system and we need to have a way to tell self from non-self. And we need, so I think engineering now is going to have to learn from, uh, of course it is already, from biological metaphors, if we talk about metaphors. I've seen some of these kind of uh, computer-based evolution models where you can kind of compete different systems against one another. Is that something that, that you've thought about with, yeah. with regards yeah, we to... Learned a lot from them. We learned a lot from this. Uh, and I'll just tell you one small story. Biological organisms are usually very modular. We have a lung. We have a liver. Inside the liver, we have hepatocytes. They do one thing. And the cholangiocytes do another thing. When you try to evolve um, a program or a network to do something, 
you get non-modular. Everything gets connected to everything in the best possible way, and you can't understand how it works. It's non-modular because there's so many uh, ways to efficiently distribute the calculation between the networks. So we were thinking, how does modularity evolve? And the way we got that to work through simulations is to notice that the problem space that organisms face is not just random. It's the same problems, but in different combinations. So you might want to eat this sugar and eat this sugar or eat this sugar, but you're always going to need to break it up into some carbon pieces that are universal or so that we call that modularly varying goals. So the world has goals, but they, the goals are made of sub goals that combine in different ways. And when we ask the computer network now to solve problems like that, like logic gates, like A and B or C and D and change that or to an and and an or and an and like that every several hundred generations, we got modular solutions. They just, they developed an and gate, they developed an or gate and just rewired it with one kind of mutation. So I think modularity in biology, one answer is that it learns the different sub problems we have. Okay. So we have a breathing sub problem, a feeding sub problem, reproduction sub problem, and that induces a structure on the the reason we're modular is because the problem space we're dealing with is modular, basically. And, and otherwise, we would lose modularity and the liver and the lung might fuse into a super optimal organ. But then when we change condition, it won't work anymore. And uh, you can see that in the ribosome. It's, it's non-modular. It's a super optimal thing because it needs to do the same thing for billions of years. So there some things uh, like that, I think, in biology are non-modular. So uh, we, we had a lot of fun with computer simulation. And I think they can... Uh, they can show you examples of evolution which are not biological and therefore are different from biology. And then you can think, oh, what's, what do we need to add in order to understand uh, biological evolution? They're superb metaphors. Yeah, yeah, super cool. Cam, do you have any follow-up questions or should we start to start to wrap? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear another song. Um, yeah, let's end with the song. But the question is, what what is the subject of the song? <laughs> <laughs> Let me do, I'll do one on um, what I want the listeners to stay with there's a, it's actually it's it's a it's a pair of songs the first one is called decision with capital letters dear author we have now heard from three referees comments are attached below as you will see they've raised concerns about your interpretation of the facts your choice of model systems your references and the style of your prose oh yeah Referee number one says the topic is interesting, results are incorrect. Referee number two says the results are okay, the topic isn't interesting. Referee number three suggests 14 additional experiments, although tangential to your main point will be nice to have. Oh yeah. As a result, we regret that we cannot offer publication at this time. Please know that we value your work and would like to see more of it in the future. At the same time, we remain committed to the high standards of the Archival Journal of Upper Nasal Cavity Research. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's about, you know, we teach ourselves how to review in science, so we... We get a cycle of uh, aggression. So the second song is a reply to that. When I get a paper to review, I look for what is fresh and new and how to realize its full potential. Of course, I note what to improve, but I always let the authors choose. After all, they know their own work better than I do. 
Hallelujah, I'll review ya. Hallelujah, I'll review ya. Now you know I've been reviewed before, and I lay crushed upon the floor, but I won't pass on the aggression to ya. <laughs> Science is a social affair. We help each other to get there, to find the truth and help it to shine through. Yeah, hallelujah. I'll review ya. Hallelujah. I'll review. Hallelujah. I'll review ya. Hallelujah, I'll review yeah. Oh boy, I'm never going to be able to listen to Leonard Cohen the same way again. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Uri, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been really a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a great pleasure. Yeah, thanks. yeah. yeah. Great. Right. <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thanks also to interns Dana De La Cruz and Kyle Smith for helping produce the episode. And Keating Shimeri produces our fantastic cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tieran Costello. 